This episode contains graphic descriptions of gun violence. Please be advised. Every cop has that one story. Being a police officer, your day can change from completely boring and nothing going on to all hell breaking loose in a second. And that all hell breaking loose could last for hours. On a hot summer night in 2006, a lone gunman roams around Queens firing random shots at pedestrians and cars. He's on an angry mission that only he understands. There were many points in that night where time slowed down, where I just wasn't believing that this was happening. As the night wears on, everyone on the streets of Queens is potentially in danger. I actually saw something pass in front of my face and it dawned on me that he's shooting at us. How many more people is he gonna hurt? Is someone gonna get killed? NYPD's top brass are feeling the heat. Do they close the bridges and tunnels, bring the city to a standstill until they find their guy? We gotta really move on this. This is not good. Anybody who had a radio that night was out there looking for that car. He's gonna put his lights on and he's gonna disappear into New York and you're never gonna find him. I'm retired Detective Sergeant Wally Zions, and this is Breaking the Case, a podcast series written and produced by NYPD Studios and supported by the New York City Police Foundation. In the second to last episode of season two, we're going to take you back to a case from August 2006. This is the story of how one individual terrorized the roadways of Queens for seven hours. We'll hear from officers who crisscrossed the highways that night on the lookout for a green car. We'll also hear from one of the victims. For her family, a best day quickly turned upside down. The date was Friday, August 25th, 2006. That night, the 109 Squad Commander, Lieutenant Conforti, was the covering supervisor for Queens North. Detective Jimmy Grotta was at his desk. So when a supervisor has a coverage, every detective squad has to notify the covering board, hey, you know, we got this shooting or we have any major crime. Shortly after 7 p.m., Grotta gets a call. It would be the first of many that night. It was from the 104 precinct, 104 squad, and they said uh, a male was shot, walking his dog, nothing serious. Then Lieutenant Conforti, today he's an assistant chief in NYPD's operations bureau, remembers getting briefed by the supervisor at the scene. A weird story that he was just walking his dog on the street in uh, Maspeth, which is unusual in a sense because there's typically not a lot of shootings, especially in that area of Queens. The only other fact was that someone shot at him from a green car. Less than an hour later, there's a second shooting. This one in Long Island City in Queens North, the 108. A cab driver stopping to pick up a fare sees a car rolling up from the opposite direction. It slows down and a hand comes up in the window. Then an explosion. The bullet shatters the cabbie's windshield and misses his throat by inches. While this is happening, Lieutenant Conforti is meeting with his counterpart, the covering boss of Queens South. They were friends and what was meant to be a social meeting over a meal quickly turned into business. They were just finishing their dinner when they got word of another shooting, this time in Richmond Hill in South Queens. So next thing you know, you know, it's like one of those things you see on TV, let's pay quick, run. The Queens South boss races to the scene of the shooting. Lieutenant Conforti heads back to the 109.
Detective Dom Satori's evening started with baseball. He took some time off at the beginning of his shift and joined his family for a Mets game at the once Shea Stadium. Then he made the short drive back to the 109 squad in Flushing, Queens. I just came from a game. I had a good time. Satori's partner was Detective Jimmy Grotta. I'm talking to Jimmy. Jimmy and I got along great. We were getting our ducks in a row for the evening. Talk about what cases we were going to work on. Here's Grata. I remember we had the domestic violence case in Jamaica. We went to go do an interview on his case. The daylight was just about ending and it was starting to get dark. We start hearing over the radio, shooting, green car. The third shooting happened at 9.37 p.m. A man was shot in the leg right in front of a restaurant in Richmond Hill. They had been transmitting the description of the car over all of the uh, precincts because they were looking for this car. And, you know, we're paying attention because it's where we're headed. We're headed to Queens South. Short time after that, we hear that the same vehicle is involved in another shooting. Now our ears are really perking up. We're saying, okay, what's going on here? At the 109 squad, Conforti was back at his desk waiting for updates. I receive a phone call from Sergeant Urasak, the person who I just had dinner with. The sergeant says that just like the Maspeth shooting, the perp in Richmond Hill was in a green car. We found it peculiar enough to discuss it, but when you're really talking geographically, other side of Queens, the likelihood of them being linked together, extremely low. So it was something that just made you go, hmm. Then Conforti gets another call from Urasak. And he's saying, I have another person shot now in the 102nd precinct, and they're saying a male in a green car again. By this time, no one's thinking coincidence, even though some of the shootings are far apart. If you look at them on a map, the Queen South incidents, numbers three and four, are less than two miles apart. The first shooting involving a green car in Maspeth is six miles away there's possibly somebody in a green car that we definitely know did two shootings over there in Queen South. Uh, very good possibility might be involved in the third one. All of the shootings had another thing in common. They were all unprovoked. No dispute, no walking or bumping into each other. No, dem It was just total random people shot. The bosses start making calls. We start now reaching out to higher up executives. Now it's not just a person shot, one-off situation. Now it's starting to get more and more concerning. Conforti also calls Detective Satori and Grata back to the squad. Being in the detective squad, if something is happening this frequently, there's probably going to be a call for all hands on deck. They're going to need us to help. As the detectives head back, they hear of another shooting. It's in the 109. This is number five. So we go straight there. On the side of the road is this red minivan. One of the windows is busted out. Two guys standing on the side of the road, shaking, and they're telling a story about how they're driving on the Whitestone Expressway which is just before the Whitestone Bridge, and a green car pulls up alongside them with a gun, fires a round into their window. The two men were hit by flying glass, but they were okay. You know, being detectives, we're, we're gonna start looking for evidence. And some of the other guys who were working that night, they show up at the scene and, and we start actually searching the roadway for spent shell casings, anything. Anything that would help us. Because now we're starting to get the idea that this description that we heard earlier of the green car and this incident here on 20th Avenue is the same guy. So it's starting to become a serious thing. While we're in the middle of that, another call. Bell Boulevard and the Cross Island Expressway. Mail shot. Me and Jimmy look at each other. 
Let's head over there. When they get to the scene, there's another red vehicle. Minivan, just like the one on 20th Avenue. Window shot out, passenger seat, you can clearly see is filled with blood. The occupant of the passenger seat has been removed, but they took him in an ambulance to the hospital. Up next, just as the night seems to be spiraling out of control, the bigger picture comes into focus. Now we got a lunatic driving around in a green car, just shooting people. And now what's emerging is the target seems to be Red Vance. Part of me wanted to get in the car with the police and go find this guy because I knew I could identify his car. As a shooting victim fights for his life, there's a citywide call for units to join the search for a green car in Queens. We'll be back after the break. On Friday, August 25th, 2006, Todd and Mary Upton have a full day. Their oldest daughter is starting her senior year of college, and they're driving her to Marist College near Poughkeepsie, New York. Their 19-year-old daughter comes along for the ride. The family packs up the red minivan they bought just a few days earlier and start off from Massapequa, Long Island. My poor husband was the only man there that day, so he was lifting mini refrigerators and grills, and we loaded up our car, brought everything to their dorm room, and help set up. The family spends the day unloading and unpacking. Then they head to a diner in Poughkeepsie. Later, they go for ice cream. We went to Dairy Queen, and they were making fun of me because I was asking the guy at the drive-thru the difference between the different chocolate desserts. After all that lifting, Todd Upton is tired. He reclines in the passenger seat, and Mary takes the wheel. Their daughter, Erin, is in the back. They're in good spirits. My husband and I comment on how much easier it was this time than freshman year when you drop your child off and we both cried all the way home. <laughs> they had just crossed over the Whitestone Bridge into Queens and they were merging onto the Cross Island Expressway. A car was in the middle lane with no headlights on. And I was concerned about possibly the person being drunk on a Friday night at 11 o'clock. So when I merged, I went ahead of him all the way across to the left lane. And he slowly came past me in the middle lane. Then I went behind him because I didn't want to stay in the left lane. And I flashed my headlights at him. I thought, maybe he doesn't know his lights are out. My husband sighed because it's like me always in charge of everybody. <laughs> After Mary flashed her high beams, the other car, a dark sedan, dropped into the right lane. I passed him. I caught a glimpse of him because I commented to my husband, he still doesn't have his lights on. He had his arm on his window, his window was open. I could see he had a white t-shirt on. And not two or three seconds later, I heard what sounded like that I hit metal in the road. And it took a minute to register. And as the second sound was coming, I actually saw something pass in front of my face and it dawned on me that he's shooting at us. The first two shots blew through the bottom left corner of the windshield. And I leaned forward, and the next sounds were two more shots, and they actually moved my hair. The second two shots brushed the hair on the back of Mary's head and shattered the driver's side window. All I knew was that I was on Cross Island Parkway, heading south, but I wasn't familiar with the area. Mary has to think fast. She starts looking for a place to pull over. 
but there's no shoulder on that part of the road. I just gunned it at that point, trying to see where he was, but he got off. I didn't know what exit we were at because we had already passed the sign for the exit. And I started yelling because in my mind, he was shooting directly sideways, which would have been at my daughter who was behind me, listening to her MP3 player. And she had headphones on. And I'm screaming, Aaron, Aaron, are you all right? And she takes her headphones off and she's like, yes, what happened? As Mary talks to her daughter, it dawns on her that her husband isn't saying anything. In fact, he isn't reacting at all. And I said, Todd. And then I heard gurgling and I started screaming to Aaron, Dad's hit, Dad's hit. And I didn't know where I was, so I'm telling her to call on her cell phone, 911. And I thought, I'll just get off the next exit. So she started the call to 911 as I'm losing it in the car. You never know how you're going to act in an emergency until you're in one. Mary was running on adrenaline, while at the same time trying not to let fear and panic get the best of her. I'm not a Queens girl, as I say, I'm a Nassau girl, and I didn't know my way around. Uh, I didn't know where the nearest hospital was, and I literally was about to lose it. And when Aaron handed me the phone, it was like, you're it, you're all they have now, you know. Todd's injured, and this is your 19-year-old in the car, and you have two other children, and you know, Get yourself together. Uh, some force just made me do that. The 911 operator stayed on the line with Mary and helped calm her down. She parked at the nearest cross street and read out the street sign. They were at Bell Boulevard and 212th Street. As we were sitting there, we could see Cross Island in front of us and we saw emergency lights and police vehicles and ambulances. And strangely enough, the uh, 911 operator told me that they were all around me, the police. And I thought, what a strange comment. Of course, Mary wasn't aware that her family's red van had been the shooter's sixth target that night. And he was minutes away from striking again at another minivan. Aaron and I are sitting in the car and I had thrown my jacket at Aaron and told her to put it on Todd's wound. She thought it was by Todd's shoulder on the right side. Um, we were never realizing there was an exit wound on the other side as well. Todd Upton had been shot in the neck. The bullet had entered on his right side, gone through both his carotid arteries and exited on his left side. And, you know, that's your main blood supply to your brain. 911 even asked at one point for us to check if he was still breathing, and I had to lift up his shirt to see if his stomach moved at all, because I couldn't tell. At 11.11 p.m., 12 minutes after the shooter pointed his gun at Mary Upton and pulled the trigger, Trigger, emergency responders swarmed the Upton's vehicle. And they had a backboard, they lowered the seat of the car to take Todd out, and when they lifted him out, um, I saw the puddle of blood in the seat. It was an enormous amount of blood, and um, I knew, you know, we were in trouble. It wasn't just a shoulder injury at all. Mary Upton added a small but important detail. The driver had his lights off, so there were no lights on the dash and no rear lights illuminating the license plate, which made the blue glow coming from the console all the more noticeable. Here's Detective Grata. Key thing that she remembered was she remembered seeing a rectangle blue on his dashboard, and what that wound up being was a serious radio. Not many cars had satellite radio in 2006, so that detail stood out. While they were at the Upton's car, Detective Satori and Detective Grata got a call from their boss, Conforti. He says, why don't you guys head back to the precinct? 
one of the other guys I work with, Frank Johnson, says he'll go to the hospital to check on the victim and, and give us a call and let us know what his status is. By now, all the bosses in Queens, the squad commanders, the precinct commanders, and the chief of Queens detectives are working on a plan. To Conforti, one thing is clear. Now we got a lunatic driving around in a green car, just shooting people. And now this is over the course of probably three to four hours now, which is very problematic. The commonality now is the last three incidents were attached to a highway where the other ones weren't. They were on city streets. 15 minutes after the Upton shooting, the perp shot at a red van on the Whitestone Expressway near 3rd Avenue. The driver was not injured. Nine minutes later, there was another non-fatal shooting in Flushing. That made it five incidents in the past hour. And now what's emerging is the target seems to be red vans. Some people were also shot just standing on the corner, but primarily it was these these red vans. Some people were shot at because they were standing next to a red van or car, and one victim was wearing red pants. So as the night progresses and, and we're finding out that there's more and more of these cases, a decision is made that the 109 precinct would be the center of all of these cases. Normally, each precinct would handle their own case but we were gonna consolidate all these cases into one big case, and because we had the most serious of the victims, we would investigate it. By we, Satori means the 109 squad. Usually, the detective next in line to catch the case is the lead investigator. Detective Grotter explains. You know, you catch cases on a rotating basis in a, you know, in a squad, and I remember when we went back to the precinct, you know, who's getting this case, we look at the sheets, and I was up for the case. I was new to the squad, you know, I was a new detective to the squad, and uh, Don's been a detective for a while. He was new to the 109, but he was a detective for a few years already. The case was high profile. It was going to be big, and the night wasn't over yet. I remember saying to Dom, I said, this is a big case. You know, I'm new here. You know, you've been here, well, you, you could take the case, and I'll assist you in any way and all. And he's like, no, 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 no. I said, listen, Dom, I'll never regret it. This is Satori. So Lieutenant Conforti at the time comes out and he says to me and Jimmy, it's going to be ours, all of it. And at that point, I think we had probably seven or eight cases. And detectives are filing into the office with their case folders and evidence and from every precinct. And they are just dropping cases on our desks. And we're saying, oh, my God, you know, this is an enormous amount of information we're going to have to go through here. So the lieutenant informs us, and I turn to Jimmy, and Jimmy looks at me, and, he, and it's, it was as simple as, hey, Dom, you going to take this? And I said, yeah. So that's how it was decided that I was going to be the lead investigator on the case. They start putting everything in order. The timeline, the locations, the evidence, the witness statements. We know that we're going to have to go through all this. We know we're going to have to re-interview people. Discussions about what to do next were taking place at the highest levels of the NYPD. Then Chief of Department Joseph Esposito was involved, along with the Chief of Detectives and the Queen's Chief of Detectives. They were trying to strategize what they were going to do, where they were going to close down all the bridges, where they were going to just close down all the exits to the highway. They decided to bring in manpower from other boroughs. The calls went out over the radio. Anti-crime units citywide were shifted to a small area of Queens. They also took every highway unit from across the city, including Staten Island, and put cars at every off-ramp in Queens to look for green cars. And there were other ideas under consideration. They were gonna contemplate shutting down the Whitestone, Throgs Neck, and Triborough Bridge. Never heard that before. 
Never heard that before. The only time that happened in recent history was after 9-11, when message boards at bridges and tunnels outside of the city read, New York City closed. At the trauma unit of New York Hospital, Queens, Todd Upton was about to undergo surgery. The Upton family gathered in the waiting area. We just started praying. At the hospital, there was another family waiting for news about a gunshot victim. Mary realized later that they were also victims of the sniper. Every once in a while, a police car would pull up to apprise me what was going on. Don't worry, Mary, we're going to find him. You know, he's out there. And I kept saying, no, you won't. He's going to put his lights on and he's going to disappear into New York and you're never going to find him. Part of me wanted to get in the car with the police and go find this guy because I knew I could identify his car. But Mary had bigger concerns at the hospital. The report from the surgeon was not good. He told us that they tried to uh, ligate the carotid arteries that had gone through one and then through the other on its exit. And I said, wait, doesn't ligate mean tie off? And he said, yes. And I said, well, how can you tie off both carotid arteries? Isn't it the blood supply to the brain? And he said, yes, there are some other veins that supply some blood in addition to that. So in my mind, I started thinking if he survived, this was going to be catastrophic to him. Todd Upton's trachea was damaged, and he was losing a lot of blood. The doctors had to stop working on him until he stabilized. The hospital staff moved the family to an empty ward near Todd Upton's room so they could have some privacy. And with that, the nurse looked down at Aaron, and Aaron's legs were all bleeding from the cut glass in the car. We hadn't even dealt with that because our minds were elsewhere, and I had a few cuts on my arms, and she wanted us to go down to the emergency room. Mary sent her daughter to the emergency room. She stayed with her husband. Then he took a turn for the worse. And um, I think that's when my prayers changed from, you know, help him get through this to help us get through this, whatever it was going to be. And, you know, give me the strength to get my kids through it and, you know, live whatever this new life was going to be with him or without him. That night, there was so much uncertainty, not just for the victims and their families, but for the NYPD bosses and every officer who was on the manhunt for the driver of the green car. Six hours had passed since the first person was shot on a street in Maspeth while walking his dog. You know, I remember such a powerless feeling just sitting, waiting for the next incident to happen. This is very surreal at this point. Like, is, is, when does this nightmare end and is it a dream? Bottom line is, uh, it's like we were almost at this point now trying to track this individual, trying to find a needle in a proverbial haystack. The good thing is the later it got, uh, the number of vehicles out on the street would obviously decrease, so it would make that person stand out a little bit more. Green isn't really a common colored vehicle. Then a call comes in. It's 1.30 in the morning. I think it was on Woodhaven Boulevard and Metropolitan, an off-duty lieutenant is on his way home in a red van, and he gets shot at. The guy shoots right into the windshield. The bullet actually ends up in the headliner of the car, so around where the lieutenant's head would be, but it doesn't hit him. Now, 
the description of that car was going out over the radio constantly. Everybody was looking for that car, looking for that car. The response from patrol to detectives to you name it, anybody who had a radio that night knew about that and was out there looking for that car. And then I'll never forget, we're, we were sitting and we get the phone call that patrol in Queens South got the perp. They got the green car, they got the guy, and they got the gun. All I know is that they stopped the car and now I'm hearing they have one person in custody and they're bringing him back to the 109 precinct. And now I'm just sitting in the office waiting. I'm just waiting. I'm like, when is, when is this person going to get here? I'm like, you know, who is this guy? What, what the heck is going on here? And it, it was like almost like time slowed down. You know what I mean? It was like, uh, you've seen slow motion video? That's what it felt like to me. It was 2.20 in the morning, almost seven hours to the minute when all hell broke loose in Queens. Tune in for the next and final episode of Season 2. In Part 2 of The Queen Sniper, two quick-thinking officers nab the suspect. At that moment, I look across the roof of the car, and I see my partner with his eyes wide as can be, and he ducks down and grabs a gun off the passenger seat. And detectives come face-to-face with the shooter. Then all of a sudden, the door of the squad opens up. He's probably about as tall as I am, six feet tall, but he looked ten feet tall to me. And he's in handcuffs and he's wearing sunglasses. It's two o'clock in the morning. I remember him just sitting there, just taking deep breaths and just punching the, the stool that he's sitting on. Breaking the Case is written and produced by the New York City Police Department and supported by the New York City Police Foundation. If you like our show, please consider giving it five stars and recommending it to your friends. And follow the NYPD on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I'm retired Detective Sergeant Wally Zions. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Be safe.